Hey, it's Brian. And before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. So if there are little ones within earshot, save this for later. Thanks. Aristotle introduced us to a word back in 335 BCE. It's a word that's important to our story. Hamartia. It appeared in his work on dramatic theory titled Poetics. And hamartia describes a flaw in a character, like arrogance or anger. And not just a flaw, but a tragic flaw. We tend to think of a tragic story as one where someone dies or suffers a great, well, tragedy. But dramatically speaking, a tragic story is one where those things can happen, but the key thing is that any misfortunes the character suffers are because of that tragic flaw, that hamartia, and the character's inability to overcome it. Think of the legend of Icarus from Greek myth. Because he couldn't keep his own hubris in check, he flew too close to the sun and died. Or Hamlet, whose indecisiveness ultimately led to his own demise and a lot of other people's too. In a tragic story, there's a feeling that all of the misfortune could have been avoided if only the character could wise up. But we know that the character is destined to carry out his own defeat. In the events leading up to the end of the 1917 Christmas season, John Glock found himself caught up in the state district attorney's investigation of wartime charities. His cozy relationship with the United States Boy Scout had set off alarm bells over conflicts of interest and spotty bookkeeping around fundraising, all of which landed Glock in an investigator's office for questioning. And the United States Boy Scout found itself in a high-profile court case with the Boy Scouts of America. Even the once fawning news media was starting to show signs of losing interest. At the end of 1917, John Gluck abruptly stepped down as the president of the Santa Claus Association and installed his 22-year-old wife, Simona Boniface, as the new president. We may never know the real reason why. There was no press release, no write-up in the papers, but the timing is certainly suggestive. But if he really was stepping down to keep a low profile, it wasn't going to help. Because John Gluck's problems, the ones he created for himself, we're only getting started. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past, and here's a little tip for you. If you ever start a charitable organization to help get children's letters to Santa Claus answered, only to find yourself accused in a letter to the Secret Service of being a spy for a hostile foreign power, you are doing it wrong. But that's exactly the position Gluck found himself in around the end of 1917. And amid the court case between the warring Boy Scout groups, the shakeup at the Santa Claus Association, and that mysterious accusation of spying, you'd think that things couldn't get much worse for Gluck. Or, to put it more accurately, you'd think that Gluck couldn't make things much worse for himself. But boy, would you be wrong. This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper. A special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. Chapter 5. A Spy in the House of Claus First of all, we should say that getting accused of being a German spy during the war years wasn't exactly rare. In New York City, anti-German sentiment was running high. There's this one story about a group of society ladies who staged a sort of tea party-style protest. They went down to the port to prevent a ship carrying German toys from unloading its cargo. Nobody wanted to buy German-made goods. 
Even Woolworth's stores, which had helped to democratize Christmas, in part by selling low-cost ornaments imported from Germany, could no longer move those ornaments off its shelves. But the trend wasn't just confined to New York City. It was really anywhere you had large German immigrant populations. There were a lot of Germans in the United States at this time. There were areas of the Midwest where German was the language of the people. That's Wesley Livesey. He's the host of the podcast, The History of the Great War. And throughout the war, there was some level of concern that there could be foreign agents here in America. Before entering the war, America was a neutral country, and that meant that German diplomats were free to be here. But after America entered the war, things changed. In fact, there was a specific moment, a watershed moment, June 15, 1917 to be exact, when President Wilson signed into law a piece of legislation known as the Espionage Act. So the Espionage Act was an act that was pushed through Congress by President Wilson after America enters the war, and it gave the government wide-ranging powers to deal with anything that they saw as against the war effort. And the Espionage Act is something that the United States government would use to shut down publications, um, socialist publications, German publications, anything that they saw as a possible vehicle for spy activity or anti-American sentiment. And if the Espionage Act sounds like something out of another time, a less enlightened time, some antiquated law passed over 100 years ago, 20-odd years before there was even such a thing as the American Civil Liberties Union, well, guess what? It's still in effect today. It's the same law that was used to charge Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. But back in 1917, the announcement of the Espionage Act was turning ordinary citizens into amateur sleuths. A lot of what you find is local people being accused of being spies by other local people. One of the things that was created was something called the American Protective League. This was a private organization. It was not officially sponsored by the government, but the government supported its creation and what it did. And so it had thousands of members that basically spied on their neighbors and other people in their communities. My favorite example, and I bring this up every time I talk about this topic, is there was a man in Toledo who went through all of the German-focused library books at his local library and wrote down anyone who seemed to be reading too many German books. That's the kind of reports that would get sent in to the American Protective League. And there was never actually any espionage convictions out of any APL activity, but sowing of fear of spies, even if it wasn't necessarily real, was something that definitely happened uh, during the war. And that brings us back to John Gluck. No, he wasn't checking German books out of the Toledo library, but there were some things about him that at least some people found suspicious. Whoever wrote that letter to the Secret Service pointed out that Gluck was of German heritage and that he had set up a chapter of the Santa Claus Association just to help New York's German-speaking population. Not only that, but he also traveled frequently to Canada, whatever that was supposed to mean. But those were just warm-up accusations. Here's the really suspicious thing. He was mentioning to anybody that would listen that he was a member of the Secret Service which was a a curious thing because you wouldn't think that somebody who was a member of the Secret Service would be advertising it. That's Alex Palmer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. And yeah, Gluck was going around telling people that he was a member of the Secret Service. Well, sorta. He was doing it in a very John Gluck way, and presumably for very John Gluck reasons. 
But that letter landed on the desk of Secret Service agent J.W. Kemp, and you'd better believe that he started looking into it. And what he found was another John Glock scheme, similar to the one that he had just gotten busted for by New York City District Attorney Edward Swan and his assistant DA, Edwin Kilrow. Remember from Chapter 4 that he was raising money for the so-called 7th Regiment of the United States Boy Scout. He was co-opting the name of a well-known legitimate group to either confuse or convince would-be donors. In 1916, Gluck had apparently launched a group called the Citizenry Secret Service that he described it as something that would give the average American a chance to help in the efforts to fight German espionage and to fight on the part of, of the U.S. It was free, and if somebody wanted to join, all they would have to do is request a, an ID card. It's likely what he was doing here was gathering names of, of individuals, and that shifted to becoming one of his big focuses, is uh, adding more and more names to his list. And using the name of a powerful government agency to help build his mailing list went about as well as you'd imagine. He was actually visited by the U.S. Secret Service at the time, uh, one of the leaders there, uh, investigated what Gluck was doing and and shut it down. But believe it or not, that's not even the weirdest part of this. You might remember from before when Gluck wrote a letter to Woodrow Wilson. He was proposing a Christmas truce campaign where one million children would somehow come together and pray for peace. Well, he wrote to Wilson again, this time with a different proposal. And this time he was suggesting that uh, with his unique position as the leader of this charitable organization that has connections to the downtrodden of the city and specifically the German population that the Santa Claus Association and and Glock in particular was in a great position to keep tabs on the poor. He was saying that the poor are not these sort of innocent, down on their luck people that more like time bombs ready to go off. He said, you know, trouble breaks out, it will come from the poor, a man who has no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner, and doesn't know where his supper is coming from uh, on account of the war, is a dangerous alien to permit to roam at large. And just like with his previous attempts to somehow insert himself into the war effort by ingratiating himself to the President of the United States, he received the response you'd expect. He got a response back from the Bureau of Investigation chief that let Gluck know that the statements made by you concerning a plan for controlling enemies has been noted. And that was about the extent of it. They sort of just let him know that they received his letter. Uh, That was it. And in typical Gluck fashion, he signed the letter John D. Gluck Esquire, despite the fact that he never attended law school. Turns out that Gluck himself had gotten swept up in all the anti-German sentiment. And emboldened by the Espionage Act, he wanted to do a little amateur sleuthing of his own or at least work some new angle to raise his reputation or create some new avenue for making money or something. Meanwhile, however, the professional sleuths were faring a bit better. Agent J.W. Kemp of the Secret Service was looking into Gluck on a number of fronts. And in the course of his investigation, Kemp compared notes with Assistant DA Edwin Kilrow. From Kemp's report, there's a case file that kind of outlines all of Kemp's findings as he does conducted these interviews and this research. And Kilrow had told Kemp that Gluck is out for the money. And according to Kemp, it, he reported that Kilrow believes him to be willing to take part in anything where there is a chance to make money. In his case file, he said that at this time, uh, it seems there's little or no dependable reason for suspecting Gluck or the U.S. Boy Scout of German intrigue. But it seems to be the consensus that Gluck is a schemer and a faker who engages in everything in which there's an opportunity to make money by fair or foul methods. Okay, so Gluck wasn't really a German spy. 
that anonymous letter sent to the Secret Service was either a false accusation, possibly as revenge for the shakeup in leadership at the Santa Claus Association, or it was a well-intentioned, though factually unsupported, warning from a concerned citizen. And Kilroe confirmed that Gluck is shady for sure, but at the end of the day, they had nothing on him. So, smooth sailing from here, right? Tell that to the Navy intelligence officer who raided Gluck's apartment. Because apart from anything to do with Swan and Kilroe, or anything to do with Kemp, or the Boy Scouts, or any of that, there was a rumor that Gluck was involved in a blackmail scheme. You see, he had recently formed a chummy relationship with a young woman named Virginia Rhodes. Miss Rhodes was a divorced woman, and that was scandalous enough in those days. And Miss Rhodes had recently been evicted from the hotel where she lived, because another guest at that hotel claimed that she was extorting money through the mail from a man in South Africa. Then the proprietor of that hotel contacted a Navy intelligence officer who specialized in international mail fraud. And in the course of all of this, he told the officer that he thought that John Gluck must be involved too. Because, after all, why else would he be paying so many frequent visits to Miss Rhodes' room? So the Office of Navy Intelligence went into cloak and dagger mode. They did actually go into his office and went through his papers and, and did find evidence of these efforts. But it wasn't quite blatant enough to be blackmail. Once again, Gluck was found to be stepping right up to the line of criminality, but not quite crossing it. Or at least not leaving behind any evidence of crossing it. Speaking of which, Gluck was also engaging in a bit of borderline blackmail through his fundraising work with the United States Boy Scout. Because there was a fundraising campaign where he was sending letters to German-owned groups. Letters that questioned their patriotism and made vague but suggestive statements to the effect of, hey, it would be a real shame if you somehow ended up the subject of an investigation. Oh, and by the way, we're raising money. How much can we put you down for? At this time where any kind of whiff of uh, being allied with the Germans was a very dangerous thing, certainly dangerous to someone's bottom line when throughout the city and the country, people were, you know, organizations were changing their name if it had any kind of German association to it. The, the Metropolitan Opera House wasn't even performing German language operas. So for the Boy Scout to reach out and say to a German company that they would raise accusations of working with the Germans in some way uh, was a very dangerous thing. But any problems with the United States Boy Scout and any of the shady things they were getting up to were about to solve themselves. Because that court case between the United States Boy Scout and the Boy Scouts of America was about to see some movement. The United States Boy Scout had been dragging its feet throughout the whole process, generally not cooperating, being slow to produce records, things like that. But it was a signature John Gluck move that brought things to a head. Gluck sent a letter to the Justice Department accusing the Boy Scouts of America of various wrongdoings. Wrongdoings that sounded suspiciously like the very wrongdoings that Gluck and the United States Boy Scout were actually engaged in. It was a gutsy and, let's face it, stupid thing to accuse a rival of the very things that they themselves were guilty of, let alone doing it to the Justice Department. He even went as far as prodding the Justice Department to investigate the Boy Scouts of America's finances. He actually wrote this long 13-page letter calling out all the questionable fundraising and business practices of the Boy Scouts of America that almost was identical to the sort of accusations that 
were actually uh, legitimate against the U.S. Boy Scouts. So this turning of the tables that was kind of astonishing. It was the kind of move that had been the source of so many of the problems that Gluck had created for himself. You'd think that he would have learned his lesson. But remember, this is a tragic story. And boldness and brashness and a spotty relationship with the truth was Gluck's, what's that word again? Harmartia. So whatever effect that letter was supposed to have, it backfired. The Boy Scouts of America replied with a challenge of their own for the United States Boy Scout to show their accounting. Now they were cornered. At first, Gluck tried to play the whole thing off like it was a huge misunderstanding. He even suggested that the two groups should merge. But obviously, the Boy Scouts of America had no interest in that. James E. West, uh, the leader of the Boy Scouts of America, refused to compromise. After years of irritation with the group, this was a chance for him to fully shut it down. So Gluck went on the offensive again, writing yet another letter to the Justice Department, making not a vague suggestion, but a direct accusation that the Boy Scouts of America were guilty of financial malfeasance. Well, the Boy Scouts of America responded again, saying that Gluck sounded desperate. And let's face it, at this point, he did. The Boy Scouts of America even suggested that the New York Attorney General get involved in all of this, and he did. The Attorney General wrote a letter to Gluck, scolding him for trying to use the Justice Department to settle a personal grudge, and telling Gluck that his claims in his original letter were meritless. Of course, all of this was playing out in the media, creating all kinds of bad press for the United States Boy Scout, and by extension, for Gluck himself. Not only that, but it was also costing everyone involved a lot of money. So finally, realizing they didn't have a leg to stand on, the United States Boy Scout decided to settle the case. In 1919, the court decided that the United States Boy Scout was no longer allowed to use the word scout or scouting in its name. And if you operate a scouting organization, that's pretty much a death blow. Okay, now, let's pause for a moment and take a breather. We've all been on a journey together. But amidst all of this wartime fervor and cloak-and-dagger intrigue and investigations and court cases, let's remember why we're here in the first place. Throughout all of this, there's still this thing called the Santa Claus Association. This sweet, feel-good group that helps get children's letters to Santa Claus answered. It wasn't operating at the full steam of its first few seasons, but it's still there being run by Gluck's wife, the young aspiring actress, Simona Boniface. And throughout this whole ordeal for Gluck, as his star was falling, hers was rising. Her aspirations of a career in show business were finally shaping up, and soon she decided that their marriage just wasn't working for her anymore. So she divorced him, obviously also quit as the president of the Santa Claus Association, and set out for California. She wound up having a decent career in the movies, doing mostly bit parts and comedies. She even appeared in a handful of Three Stooges movies, including Half-Wit's Holiday in which she gets a pie to the face, because that was a thing they did in movies back then. And it's probably also a good way to describe how Gluck was feeling at this point. Losing his wife was devastating. Losing the court battle was humiliating. The Santa Claus Association was a shell of its former self, and Gluck just wasn't feeling up to taking up the helm again after Simona left. So he found himself in the market for takers. Instead of him taking back over the role, he sought to actually 
pass off the group altogether. He actually proposed to the Salvation Army that they take over the Answering of Santa Letters and, and run the Santa Claus Association. And, no surprise, his pitch to potential takers was in signature John Gluck fashion. He claimed that uh, the, the reason he was passing this off was because it had become so successful that it was just too much for him and his volunteers to handle. But they replied that uh, they really could not do justice to the organization, so they let him sort of hold on to it. But at this point, clearly his, his heart was not in it. So he walked away. He managed to find a retired businessman who was willing to keep things afloat. And for a while, Gluck retreated from public life for the most part. He got a job managing a newspaper in New Jersey. But this wasn't the end of the Santa Claus Association, though that is coming. Nor was it the end of Gluck's shenanigans, though that's coming too. Because unlike other tragic stories, this isn't the story of the rise and fall of John Gluck. It's the story of the rise and fall and rise and fall. You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. It's produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Dave Depper, Poddington Bear, and Kevin McLeod. The entire series is available now under the regular podcast feed for Christmas Past, so look for Christmas Past wherever you get your podcasts. And the other episodes for the season are coming soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thanks to Alex Palmer and Wesley Livesey. You can find out more about everyone involved in the series and discover some bonus content over at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta. Santa.